Hi, I'm Jake Morgan. You're listening to Think Sustainability, or what would usually be Think Sustainability, but today we're doing something a little different. 2SER Radio is the station that makes this show possible, and at the moment we're in the middle of our supporter drive, which is where we reach out to you, the wonderful listeners, to financially show your support to the station. It doesn't come cheap to keep this place up and running and to deliver this show to you week in, week out. If you want to donate to 2SER, all you have to do is head to 2SER.com forward slash donate and you can make a tax-deductible donation to the amount of your ch- So today we're going to play a show that aired a couple of months back. Hope you enjoy it. Don't panic if, if you feel a snake or anything. <laughs> because, uh, they're all friends. They're all friends. Hello, Spider. How are you? I'm at the Australian Botanic Gardens in Mount Annan, which is the largest botanical gardens in the country, and they specialise in native plants, of which Auntie Frances Bodkin is an expert. And they all have a story to them, too. Like this beautiful macrosania here. See that? See the fruit? Um, Cook mistook that for pineapple. It does kind of look like a pineapple, doesn't it? And he fed it to his pigs. It's deadly poison, but we we ate it. Well, it took a while. It took about, well, a good 10 days to be able to get it into edible form, but it was the only source of starch we had. And if you just kind of eat it like that, you get poisoned? Yes, yes. It is quite poisonous. And so it was really good fun to watch white men with great big belly aches when they came. <laughs> Auntie Fran is a Dawa woman whose ancestors were the First Nations people of the southern and southwestern Sydney area. Everything Fran knows about plants, she first learned from her family. <laughs> and who taught you? Oh, my grandma. Oh, she, she was actually my great-grandma. And how did she teach you? Took me out in the bush and showed me the plants, made me taste them, made me smell them. That's the other thing. In the Australian bush... Lots of our most beautiful flowers don't have any perfume, but the leaves of the plants have a wonderful perfume, and you can actually identify what the plants are used for by their smell. And that's what we did. Because Nan always used to say, the smell is the first sense you use and the last sense you die with. And in our bushland, yes. And I'll give you an experience of that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. As Fran walked me around the gardens, it became instantly clear to me that nature and the bush was like a second home to her. Every plant, every tree, every shrub she walked past, she knew the name of, where it's from, and what it's used for. Like this one. That one there is a beautiful one, too. Is this a eucalyptus, it says? Oh, yeah, it's a eucalyptus. It's the argyle apple. Now, you have a smell of that. Wow, it's very... Very strong. Mm. Mm. Now I'll take you to another one that looks like it. it. Has a different smell. Try that one. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. It. How do you describe the difference between that the two? One, back there, that was for pain of the flesh. Mm. This is for pain of the bones. I'm trying to. I I can set like I can smell the difference, but I don't know how to explain the difference. Well, neither do we. Mm. But we know the difference. Okay, you don't have to be able to explain it, you just have to know it. 
Fine-tuning her sensory skills has made Fran a master in knowing which native plants are safe and which ones can be dangerous. And as Fran says, some people have to learn that the hard way. We used to take groups down into the Natai Valley. The Natai Valley is in the Natai National Park in the southern highlands of New South Wales, south of the Warragamba Dam. Once you get down into the valley, there's only one way in and one way out. And it's difficult. There's probably a thousand foot cliff to climb to come out. And one of the guys, he was lagging behind and he didn't look well. And I asked him what was wrong and he said, oh, I've got Parkinson's disease and I've lost my tablets. And I thought, oh. And, uh, but what was really remarkable was we had a plant for the shaking hands disease. And Really? Yeah. And there it was growing right at the base of the cliff. And I thought, wow, you know, thank you, whoever. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I gave it to him. Within a couple of minutes, he was, you know, up and bouncing around and everything and not even shaking. And I thought, wow. And he beat everybody else up the cliff. But his mate that was with him grabbed some of the plant, took um, some of it home. And instead of doing as I told them, you know, you just, just warm it in your hands and then you cover your face with your hands and you breathe in deeply, um, he smoked it. And he became obsessed with the fact that he was Superman and he could jump through walls. And he kept trying to jump through walls. <laughs> he wasn't Superman. And so the police locked him up. They put him in a straitjacket. He broke the straitjacket. They um, locked him in a cell and he's still trying to jump through the walls. This went on for three days. So that was a really good lesson for the group, not to do what you're not supposed to do, that you had to... You know, obey the instructions to the letter. I don't know what's happened to, to Paul. I don't know what happened to him. Paul being the... Um, was Paul the one who had Parkinson's or the one who no, the took one it? That, that um, took the, the plant. It had a great effect on me because I had not known, because I was always warned when I was taught, don't do anything other than what we tell you. You know, I always thought if I did something that they didn't want me to do, they'd probably come back and haunt me and I didn't want that. <laughs> This knowledge is intrinsically linked to Auntie Fran's heritage, but it also risks becoming lost. One of the things that really sort of makes me sad is that we can't, cannot progress our knowledge. Our knowledge stopped 200 years ago. Like the Darwals, like my, my mob, right? We were supposed to number about 5,000 when, when Philip arrived meaning Arthur Philip, the first governor of New South Wales, who came over on the first fleet. But what happened was we got the diseases and our numbers went right down to less than 100. And then, in 1816, the massacres occurred and we were wiped out except for five. So now there's 185 of us. It's been a long time, over 200 years, to get back to even what we were after the diseases. And this is, this is the thing that really, really bugs me, that we stopped our knowledge 200 years, more, more than 200 years ago, when really we should be able to advance it. But slowly, Fran is changing this. For years, Fran has worked as an educator, working with groups from preschool-age kids to adults, 
sharing the knowledge that she holds. She's written three books about Darwin culture, stories and natural resources. And she's also shared her knowledge with academic institutions. What I've done with mine is I've given it to the university, right, on the condition that any benefit they receive goes towards creating scholarships for Aboriginal children to study science. So I'm not doing it for myself. I couldn't have done it anyway because, you know, my conscience wouldn't let me. I'd be scared of my mum and my nan (laughs) coming back, (laughs) getting their revenge. But there's another side to this, and that's when that knowledge shared is then taken away from the community. For example, the Kakadu plum. I mean, this, this example is used quite often. This is Natalie Stoenoff, a professor and director of the Intellectual Property Program at the University of Technology, Sydney. The Kakadu plum um, has been used for health purposes. It has a very high level of vitamin C, has other, other uses for it, etc., uh, antiseptic, etc., which has been utilised by the communities for their own well-being. That knowledge has actually been taken by... Uh, an American corporation, a cosmetic one, called Mary Kay. The kakadu plum has been dealt with and introduced into cosmetics. And they have obtained a patent for the use of the, the kakadu plum in that purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? And no compensation has been brought back to the community or, or even for the community to be involved in the process of developing those new forms of inventions, as they call them. And you said that is an American organisation. How did they get to that point of knowing about the kakadu plum? Like, what was that process of them understanding it and and then, I guess, taking taking it for what it was worth? Okay. There there is a community of people called bioprospectors. A bit like, you know, you know, the old-fashioned idea of, of gold prospecting and all the rest of the you know, miners that go out and do things. Well, there's bioprospectors as well, where they take samples of things and they take them back to the laboratory and check them out. This is what ha- has happened for quite some period of time, where you would have people who are researchers, whether they're local researchers, who in turn then work for these larger corporations or speak to people, etc., will go out, take samples, check them out, and see if there's something worth producing a, a chemical that from the, that plant material that is actually useful, turning it into a, you know, a cosmetic, turning it into a vaccine, whatever it might be. Auntie Fran has a pretty strong view about when companies seek out this knowledge. I don't like the American and German chemical companies. I don't like the way they operate. As far as I'm concerned, they're thieves. There's a company called Amrad, a chemical company, and they came over and they visited an old guy over in West Australia because they had a, a, one of his smoke bushes over there was a cure for some kind of heart disease. And so they paid him $100 to show them the plant. He got his $100, showed them the plant. They went straight back to the West Australian government and bought the rights to that plant for a million and a half dollars. That poor old guy could not use his own plant anymore. It didn't belong to them anymore. It belonged to that company. Amrad chased after me because they wanted mine of a certain plant. They wanted my knowledge. And uh, I told them to go and get... Uh, not very... Say it. <laughs> fucked. <laughs> right? 
which rather surprised them because I don't think they expected to, I think they expected me to put my hand out for the money. Mum always taught me you do not sell your knowledge, you give it. You know? And so that's what I did. Both Fran and Natalie are part of something called the Garawanga Project. The project focuses on developing something called a competent authority to govern and administer a legal framework for the protection of traditional knowledge. We give an example, a pretend case study, of how this legislation might be utilised. We give an example of how the whole system might work because what we establish is the need for communities to have their databases of their knowledge created by them, not by anyone else, but by them. Those databases then can feed into a major database, which is either regional or state, which would then be managed by what we call the competent authority. Now, that competent authority would then be like a go-between between a third party, such as a Mary Kay corporation that wants to find some information, and the community that might happen to have that information. I'm thinking of a question, is would these communities want to share that information even if this was passed? They don't have to. That's that's the beauty of this, because it is enabling them, if they want to do so, to, to, to set up those databases the way they, they say want to do it, to make them available for interaction. And I don't mean making them available publicly, I mean make them available so they can be discussed upon uh, whether they want to go forward with a particular group or not. Then it would be a case of, of the community choosing what they propose to put onto those databases, rather. They might be happy to simply have that knowledge taken, made into some sort of, I don't know, pharmaceutical, whatever it might be, and that they have a percentage of the royalties coming back to them. Um, So it just depends on, on what sort of things are important to that community as to what gets negotiated. A white paper has been put together to make this legal framework law, but it has not yet been taken up by the government. Auntie Fran says to have this written in legislation is crucial to protect Aboriginal knowledge. But until that happens, she'll keep doing what she's doing regardless. Why do you do this? Why? Because I can. And I feel that it is my duty anyway. I'm not going to die with all that knowledge, like a lot of you know, my ancestors have done. I'm going to use it for the good well, even that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Look, it sounds like no, Robin Hood or something. No, I don't think so at all. Yeah. And I always hoped that one day we would be able to get laws that would protect our knowledge from those rapacious, you know, overseas chemical companies so that people could actually go out into their backyards and get the plants they needed or the medicines they needed. And we're doing that now. Took a long time. <laughs> Auntie Frances Bodkin ending that story. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. From biodiversity to language. When a language is lost, an entire way of life disappears. There were around 250 Aboriginal languages in Australia before the invasion. Since then, around half of these have gone extinct and this has taken away the songs, rituals and knowledge that once defined a cultural identity.
However, Aboriginal communities around Australia are starting to use online digitisation projects to store, preserve and teach languages. This is Richard Green, a Darug man from Western Sydney. Right, so that um, cognitively helps them understand sitting on, gum tree, uh, laugh, you know, and that for children it's just ideal. He's also fluent in Darug, the traditional language of the Sydney Basin. After taking it upon himself to learn the language when he was young, Richard now teaches it in schools. I've been teaching it now for a couple of decades. When I first heard it come back, it was overwhelming and uh, emotional to the point where I was beside myself in tears. On the official records, Darug is listed as a critically endangered language. According to UNESCO, this means the youngest speakers are grandparents and they speak the language partially and infrequently. But Richard says that even from a young age, Darug has always been around him. Yaguna, Barella, Birong, it's all our language. And although I'd heard it as a boy and I was using the word kakaya, kakaya, gunan, shit, you know, referring to my family, like my grandfather's gumang, you know, that's language. So it's obviously, it's biologically. The words were there, but. Yes, you know, thousands and thousands of years of them. Darug is one of the roughly 120 Aboriginal languages still spoken in Australia today. It's experienced a revival in recent years, in no small part due to Richard's determination. He developed a website called daragdalang.net and he uses this as a classroom resource. That's who I put the website together for, kids, not to make money, man. I put it together for kids, for our old people to heal. You know, what it's done to some of our older women, I've seen it. Darug isn't the only Aboriginal language to go digital. Across Australia, a resurgence in traditional languages is taking hold. Aboriginal communities are reclaiming their cultures from libraries and museums and preserving it instead in spaces that they're in control of. Over at the University of Technology, Sydney, lecturer Kat Katai saw an opportunity to use her experience to help Aboriginal communities digitise their languages. I'm a geek from way back. I've been programming since punch card days. And so I had these IT skills and I could see a whole lot of potential. Particularly in Sydney, we've got a lot of Radri people, a lot of Bunjalung people, plus the local Darug and Darawal and Gadigal. They are people off for their country, so in theory, you know, you should be doing things that relate to the country you're on, but their country is somewhere else. So they need to link back to their country. Kat started a project called Indigenous Knowledge Online. She says there are many benefits to using the internet to preserve Aboriginal knowledge. The scope of IT to provide this communication and sharing was the first one. But secondly, the teachers could share resources because the teachers are learning as much as the students. They could help each other and support each other online. And you could get the old audio archives and link them into the text. So we've got automatic linking. Indigenous Knowledge Online is probably better described as a learning portal rather than a website. It works with other websites to create a network between various community projects. It's also user-driven meaning that language speakers can log on and share content. 
This means the website is shaped by actual language speakers who can actively choose how they want their language to be conveyed. They provide the initial resources. For instance, they knew that IATSIS had these tapes. They knew that there were these written resources in. So they'd bring them and say, well, these are what we wanted online. Then they would add extra recordings. The teachers are the ones who are going to teach it. So they need to set up what goes on in terms of information or exercises. Or, so it's entirely their work. The idea of the IT is just to support what they want to do. What's more, Indigenous Knowledge Online was created by university students. According to Kat, this means the website isn't just communicating language, but also training students in cultural sensitivity. Engineering students start to understand the needs of different communities is very different. We've got a certain technology developed in our society, but that doesn't suit every culture. And when we try and take our technology saying, oh, this is just what you need to other communities, often it's quite harmful because it's developed under certain assumptions. It's your culture that creates your engineering rather than the other way around. For Kat, it's navigating culture that has proved the biggest challenge. Digitisation has been particularly difficult for Aboriginal communities who traditionally restrict access to knowledge. Kat says some communities have been hesitant to trust the website. The Bunjong's hard because it's still only close to the language teachers. They're still not very confident right the exercises online. We're sort of putting them on and then they will then add to them. Kat navigated this problem by making certain parts of the website require a logon. That way, the Bundjalung community can decide for themselves who can access their language resources. And the result? They're really pleased, they're really proud and they really like it. Another challenge is updating the vocabularies to match modern life. There are so many words we have now that have no equivalent in texts recorded 200 years ago. But what this shows is that language changes all the time and there's no reason why Aboriginal languages can't change too. In the classroom, Richard updates Darug to reflect contemporary society. He teaches students things like days of the week to illustrate the differences between the two cultures. Nay, we didn't speak it like that. We didn't walk around saying, I'll see you next Thursday or Friday or Sunday, because we, were, we had no concept of the day, like those days of the week as being a time parameter. You know, we're, we're from the environment, so everything related to timing and Aboriginal consciousness has to do with the environment, weather. And learning a language this way is also kind of fun. Like Monday, what's Monday named after? The moon? The moon, yeah, too easy. The, the moon in our language is Yanada. So, how do we say Monday? Hey, Yanada, guys. Whoa, too easy. Go to the top of the class, give yourself a biscuit or an uppercut. <laughs> so... Tuesday is named because all these names are Nordic. And Tules was a spirit, right? So we say Nayi, which is spirit. So Nayi. Ka. Too good. Wednesday, and this is where it gives credibility, right? It's Bidang because Wednesday is named after stars. So how would we say Wednesday? Biranga. Ah, too easy. Right. Thursday. I know what Thursday is named after. It's yes. named after Thor. Oh, you betcha. So Thursday is thunder, right? In our language, it's morongo. Morongo ga. Oh, too good. And now you know the days of the week. Techniques like this make lessons easier. And for Richard, it doesn't matter what age you are when you decide to learn a language. Now, when I've done this class itself for the, uh, the teachers, just the other week, 20 teachers or so, they were beside themselves, speaking it before I left the classroom.
Digitization projects are merely a tool, just a way to store a language. And unlike a dusty old museum archive, websites are created by communities and for everyone. But actually sustaining Aboriginal languages still takes people who are willing to teach and people who are willing to learn. As Kat says, all of Australia benefits from keeping Aboriginal languages alive. The Indigenous knowledge side is partly about what sort of projects you could engage with to understand the Indigenous knowledge that existed prior to um, invasion. Also, how you can become more sustainable, better at communication and governance. Kakatai, lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability, and we're going to end the show with a song from Richard Green. Head to our website, 2scr.com forward slash Think Sustainability for more information. And remember, we're also available as a podcast, so search for Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SCR. This is Richard Green with Up the Road. See where the young one come, stamping for fun. One play, one dumb, one stick, one run. We're going up the road. See where the bullong comes, smiling. Hips go this way, eyes go that way. All in her way, we're going up the road. Where all that you hope to face and fear And all that you'll ever know And all that you hope to be one day And all that you are blind We're going up the road Gone up the road We're gone up the road I see where the young one comes Stamping foot go this way Eyes go that way All in their day Gone up the road See where the bullung comes, smiling. Hips go that way, eyes go his way. All in her day, going up the road. Where all that you hope to face and feel, and all that you'll ever know. And all that you hope to be one day And all that you are blood We're going up the road We're going up the road We're going up the road We're 
we're going up the Ship watching clouds go drift in the rim. Future gift going up the road. I see where the good monks are. Here they am. Here it is. All in this going up the road. I know. That you hope to face and fear, and all that you'll ever know, and all that you hope to be one day, and all that you are blind, going up the road. Going up the road. We're going up the road. Going up the road. Going up the In a guy, a miran Miran, Miran, Yungori, Yungori. In a guy, Mudangwa, Balangada. I belong to the Darug people. I belong to the Burburongo people, the land of the red kangaroo of Western Sydney. I'm also related to the Darawa, Yungori from the south coast. And the Dungari people, Biripai people of North Coast. And we speak our similar tongue of Palmanduan. I said I belong to the Dark people, the people of the Red Kangaroo. I belong to the people of South as well. I'm also a strong man and an elder brother. Today in schools, We're getting the paradigms put through the school and kids are learning it. Um, And to hear it spoken and see it working is overwhelming. I'm a singer. I'm a storyteller. Most of all, Ingaya Dayan Malabu. I am a brother's son. <laughs> 